0: This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash offer. all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash offer. Hey
0: everybody, welcome to 2020. It's Blake here. Things got a little bit slower of a start than I expected due to a just cascade of illnesses and other delays here in the whole personal life file, <laughs> off-air sort of stuff, Um, Happening, but I'm super excited to be back and delivering new shows to you on the feed. This first episode I have for you of 2020 features an interview with Anna Jane Joyner. She is a climate activist and a podcaster, and we talk about her life as a PK, as well as how she got interested and involved in climate activism and where she finds hope in today's climate, (laughs) pun intended. Uh, Both in regards to her work uh, at within iron environmentalism, as well as just the overall political climate that we are all knee-deep in here, at least in the United States and, and in other parts of the, the world as well. Uh, things feel tumultuous sort of all the time. We talk about where she finds hope uh, and a whole host of other things as well. So I hope you really enjoy this interview. This episode was produced by Jake Lewis. Thank you very much, Jake. As always, you can support the show by letting other people know about it, by rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, and finally, by your direct support at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. All right, everyone, let's get into it.
1: This life and world is pretty wonderful, and I want to be present for it.
0: everyone, and welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest this week is Anna Jane Joyner. She is a climate activist and the co-host of the No Place Like Home podcast. Anna Jane, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thank you again for for coming on. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you a little bit uh, uh, just about your work and, and about your life. Um, and where I usually like to start these conversations is to get a good sense of um, what's your first sort of experience with religion or evangelicalism was. Um, did you grow up in the church?
1: I did, yeah. Um, my dad is a, what some would call a mega church pastor, a pastor of a large ministry and church in the Carolinas. Um, and he started that ministry when I was probably seven. So for as long as I can remember, I've grown up in the church. And really until I went to high school Um, I went to a public high school, but up until that point, you know, it was our whole world. I didn't even know that there was much outside of it. So it was um, quite an intense childhood.
0: I'm also married to a PK, so I I don't have that firsthand experience, but I I do know that that is like a very formative uh, childhood experience. So um, you mentioned you, you went to public school in high school. Did you go to like a Christian school prior to that?
1: Yep, I did. Okay. I went to Christian private schools um, until ninth grade, and then we moved up to the mountains in North Carolina, and there just weren't any private schools around. So I uh, my mom tried homeschooling for a year, and that was a disaster for everyone involved. <laughs> so, um, so I went to public school, and it was it was a really amazing experience. It was my first kind of foray out into the larger world and making friends outside of evangelicalism um i had some amazing teachers and still some made some lifelong friends so
0: that's good it is totally okay to get sort of in the weeds with with like different christian lingo and everything on this show the church that your that your father pastored it, was it considered a non denominational church or did it have a denominational affiliation um what sort of expression of evangelicalism was it
1: <laughs> it was um it was non denominational kind of charismatic Pentecostal I'm trying to think what the closest variation is, but, you know, lots of laying on of hands and prophetic teams and healing services and all kinds of traumatic related experiences.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How, How did you sort of respond to that as, as a child? Was that something that, what was your sort of individual sort of response to being in that environment?
1: Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, I think definitely being a pastor's kid in a, Pretty, um, you know, especially when they first started that church in the 90s, it was kind of the hip, cool church to go to. There was a lot of, like, you know, 20-somethings. They had a big music and worship program. They incorporated a lot of art into the programming. Um, so I think there's certainly, like, a, you know, you're kind of the, the daughter or the child of of the big VIP man. So there's a little bit of, you know, I definitely liked that element of growing up feeling mm-hmm. Um, Like I was important and that my family was important and we, you know, we get to go into all the VIP rooms at the conferences and go on big international trips with my dad. And um, that was all super exciting. And I saw a lot of the world and met a lot of fascinating people. Um, The church itself, I honestly, like I I knew, I mean, to some degree it was all sort of all encompassing, but, you know, I had cousins outside of the church. So I knew that we were kind of considered odd (laughs) by a lot of people, Mm. particularly my mom's more. My mom grew up in kind of a traditional Southern Presbyterian family. So um, I knew that we were viewed as kind of outsiders from from there. So that, and then like when we moved to the mountains and I, I went to high school, they called us the cult, the cult girls, me and my sister, who was also uh, close to my age. So really, um, yeah. So that wasn't super fun. Um, as far as like the actual sort of my personal relationship with the religion, I, it's funny, I've, I'm the oldest of five and, none of us were super into it. You know, like, I don't know if we just like saw too much behind the curtain or, um, because we were born into it and didn't convert into it. We just never, you know, I went through like a three month period when I was like 15 or 16 after going on a missions trip with teen mania, which is like total brainwashing bullshit. But, um, (laughs) They, you know, where I was kind of really, you know, I got really into it and would read my Bible every day and, you know, but that lasted like approximately three months. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that was like the most like evangelical Christian I ever was. And then I was, I was 16. I was still in high school when I kind of woke up and was like, I'm done with this. I'm,
0: I'm. So you you sort of felt like you checked out around that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I did. I had, you know, I had my first boyfriend and I, I've always just been, I think it was kind of a predecessor to my climate activism, but I've always just been really in love with this world Mm -hmm. and kind of very curious, maybe a little hedonistic. (laughs) And, um, yeah, I just, I read a lot. I love traveling and I was just, I was, I don't know. I, I was tired of thinking about the afterlife. I was tired of feeling guilty and ashamed about you know, normal teenage things. And I, and, you know, and, and the charismatic Pentecostal church, even, even the conversations that aren't about the afterlife are very much about the supernatural and this Mm. kind of like other realm. And I just, no, no, I was over it. I, I, I love this world and I was tired of it getting sort of second hand treatment. And so I just, I remember, and also, yeah, the guilt thing was real, not so much like, I know a lot of people who are raised in evangelical Christianity, particularly women, struggle a lot with, you know, sexual kind of morality, politics and all of that gross right. stuff. Yeah. And that certainly wasn't fun. And I'm sure that the, you know had lots of conversations with therapists processing all of that stuff. But it wasn't for me. It, that wasn't really what it was. That was a component of it. It was more just like I, I remember being really young. Like maybe from like age nine and, and crying myself to sleep, wondering if maybe I didn't believe in God. And if I was, if I didn't believe in God and I was wrong, then I was going to hell. And I was so terrified to talk to anyone about it because I thought I would be ostracized that yeah. I held that, you know, for like five or six years and went just was terrorized by it. And then that's kind of what broke me. It was just like I'm, I'm done feeling afraid of this thing and I have no idea what happens in the afterlife. And I'm tired of thinking about it. And I don't really think anyone actually knows. <laughs> but I yeah. do know this life and world is pretty wonderful. And I want to be present for it. Um, and stop worrying about all this other kind of esoteric bullshit. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's totally fair. <laughs> <laughs> I I love the way you you phrased it as being in love with this world. Um, was that something? W- you, and you mentioned that that it, like the physical world, this the world that we we inhabit, uh, just in our bodily experience, sort of got second shrift um, within within your religious context. Uh, did you find anything when you like transitioned to like public s- school? Did you did you feel like you finally were able to explore that a little bit more? Um, Or was there anything connected to education at all that, that sort of let you feel more confident or comfortable in really investigating the physical world and the world we live in?
1: Um, I mean, that came, I would say, later in college. I think that, like, certainly I was a huge reader. That was one thing I do credit my dad um, with giving us is, you know, we had a really big library in the house and not just Christian books. We had, like, all of the classics and we were really encouraged to read. So um, I think that certainly contributed to a, a curiosity about the world that, that was, um, that grew when I did go to public school and had, you know, amazing English teachers and history teachers. And, um, and yeah, that, that was a part of it, but I think it really was the, and another thing that I will credit my parents with is they did, they did just raise us in absolutely beautiful places. And, you know, we grew up in the Western North Carolina mountains, which are, you know, just absolute heaven. And um, and then we spent the summers on the Gulf Coast of Alabama, which is also heaven, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is where my mom is from. And so I just grew up in these really beautiful places. And my, and my parents, even though we didn't talk about, you know, environmentalism or climate change or recycling or anything like that, like they were really into spending time outside. And my dad would take us hiking. And they did kind of lay the foundation for really sort of appreciating the natural world in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of more what what drew me to eschewing a lot of the the more esoteric kind of s- hyper spiritual stuff
0: you you have mentioned climate activism where where does that the kernel of that sort of start for you
1: yeah um so that was you know I was raised very conservative in you know the deep south evangelical world mm-hmm. and we were kind of proud republicans on, on on both sides of my family and it was very much a part of our family and cultural identity so I didn't really even Ever think that maybe I was something else. Yeah. Um, but what happened was I went to college. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill. And at that point, I was kind of a full on he- heathen. You know, I joined a sorority. I was partying really hard, but also studying really hard. I, I've always taken like intellectual pursuits very seriously. Um, but, you know, wanted to be a lawyer or, you know, something, a diplomat, maybe something. Um, something very important where you make lots of money but but I didn't have any sort of social social impact orientation that first year but I did um I ended up studying abroad in New Zealand my sophomore year and I'm not even sure why because that's actually pretty young for study abroad programs at Chapel Hill most people do them their junior year and I loved Chapel Hill you know like I was having a great time in my like tri-delt sorority party time world I was dating a cute baseball player and you know nobody knew about my dad or my background like I just said that I was um I said my dad was a writer which is true he's written a lot of books but I (laughs) no one knew that I was a preacher's kid and I had this kind of secret life where I was sort of the VIP child and it's yeah but anyways, I did end up studying abroad in New Zealand, and it was the first, well, there was a couple of things. One, I took an ecology course, mm-hmm. and it was just um, sort of whimsical. Like, I, I needed to take a science. The sciences at UNC Chapel Hill were really difficult, so I figured I'd take mine to you know study abroad. And, um, you know, it was, I mean, New Zealand is another just absolutely magical place, and we were running around in some of the most beautiful country in the world, um like you know, truly, like Lord of the Rings style. that's where it was filmed. right. yeah. um, so just really feel you know falling even further in love with the majesty of this planet. And then also we were learning about ecosystems and kind of the very um, crazy, beautiful way that life exists and and how we're all very interconnected and how grasses grow and bird might, you know birds migrate. And I was just mesmerized by that. Um, so that was a piece of it. And then another part of it was, I. it was during the second Bush election, mm-hmm. which was the first time I could vote. I was 19. And so, and all of my friends in New Zealand, you know, they were Kiwis or they were Americans from the West Coast or they were Europeans. And this is like well into the Iraq War. And so all of my friends are like, you can't vote for that guy. He's a war criminal, <laughs> you know, like he's. I'm terrible. And I just didn't even ever consider that maybe I wouldn't vote Republican. So I was like, oh, maybe I should do some research on this and actually, (laughs) you know, figure out what I think about politics. And so I, I did. I did a bunch of research on all these different issues and I took one of those online, you know, tests that's like are, you know who should you vote for? And it was like 70% Democrat. <laughs> and so I was like, <laughs> oh, I guess I'm not a Republican. And I didn't vote for Bush. I voted for Kerry and have not voted for a Republican ever in my life. Um, <laughs> and, and that really was kind of, I'm, I guess those two things were kind of the beginning of my political awakening and also the beginning of my um, you know, fascination with environmentalism and caring for the earth. And, and also it was a very spiritual experience. Like it was, I had been kind of in this very like materialistic, um, phase, which was fun. And I think a part of my process, like, but being in New Zealand, you know, a lot of the people I with were kind of hippies, you know, they would meditate and they were into, you know, Buddhism and, um, kind of Eastern religions Mm -hmm. and, also, I just felt like being out in this beautiful country, like I did feel this spiritual connection to the earth and and really felt, you know, there was something something within growing up in, in the evangelical world as you are raised to believe that you can you can make the world a better place and that you can help people and that you know there is greater causes than just sort of selfish. Um, self-satisfaction and and materialism and Mm -hmm. and that sort of reawakened in me in that experience and um, I went back to Chapel Hill and I switched my major to environmental science and kind of quickly learned that I was not a scientist (laughs) and so I ended up in environmental communications which is what I still do to this day. And um and that's really where I started learning about climate change, about mountaintop removal coal mining and how they're blowing up mountains, you know, not far from where I grew up in the Appalachian Mountains. Mm, and you know, mm-hmm. you know, GMOs and um just these horrible environmental crises um that we were, you know, experiencing. And and that's kind of where this love that had been awakened really turned to kind of fierce anger at how we were treating the world and treating each other. And that's really where my kind of act, I've literally been an activist ever since. And mm. I was 19 years old.
0: Yeah. That's, that's really, I mean, all, all that is really, really fascinating. Uh, there's so many things in, in all of that, that to, to explore one of one of the things that, that comes to mind is you mentioned that this was like the, uh, the second Bush term, that sort of being the, the background I think that a lot of people like I'm, I'm in, I'm of a similar age as I'm 36.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm 34. Yeah. yeah.
0: So I was, that was also my first time to vote. And I remember, I, I remember feeling like a heretic for like actually not voting for a Republican um, mm-hmm. just because I, similar to you, I I sort of assumed that I just probably vote Republican because that seemed like the the right and correct thing to do. I sort of felt like this, this sort of this, this heretic, and sort of questioned this sort of change within myself um, because it felt like I was in the, in the minority from like my, my upbringing, so to speak. Um, did you, did you sort of feel that way yourself or did, did it feel more like an, a natural progression and like this, this was, this is actually where I need to be. This is where I need to focus.
1: Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I don't know if it's because I'd sort of left Christianity behind a few years before um, but I didn't feel that I felt it did feel very natural for me. And, um, you know, I also was kind of a new convert to, to kind of progressive activism. So I mm-hmm. was really, you know, like you, know, me and my dad were getting an epic, you know, fights or under, over the dinner table and my mom would cry and my brothers and sisters would hide. And, you know, <laughs> oh, so no. I, I was very fervent in my rightness and my newfound passion for,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, for kind of the opposite of the politics that I was raised in. But I, I think it was something more than that. I'm not really sure what it was. I've, I've been asked this question before about like, why, why I, I didn't feel that kind of guilt or a fear around, around that transition. It just, it did always feel kind of right to me. It just sort of made sense. Like, of course I don't know. I th- I think in some ways, like the, the democratic platform is more in line with my values, even, even some of the more evangelical values, like caring, you know, caring for the earth should be a Christian value and caring for our neighbors should be a Christian value. And so mm. the fact that the Democrats tend to be stronger on those issues, just, it just felt like the right thing to me.
0: You You bring up a good point. Like, I think some people feel, guilty that they didn't feel guilty. <laughs> you yeah. know, And like that, that isn't necessarily the case just because plenty of other people have a sense of guilt. Like that, that's just one response. You don't need to feel that there's no obligation to feel that.
1: Yeah. Honestly, like I would say it was more of a liberation, you know, like a yeah. weight had lifted off of me and, um, and I felt more kind of in my own skin and more in line with my, with my kind of core values.
0: That And that's, that's really great. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's so wonderful to, to, to sort of discover that about your, about yourself and also align it with the sort of work that you want to do. Uh, you mentioned that you, you were having these debates with your, uh, with your dad over the dinner table and that sort of thing. Did you ever explore the theological arguments for ecological stewardship and that sort of thing? Was that something that ever became a focus for you personally?
1: Yeah, it did. Um, but it was, it took a while. Um, I kind of, well, it actually was studying communication, you know, like I studied rhetoric was actually my major. And the first thing that you learn is like a student of rhetoric is like, you are only, you you can only be persuasive if you know your audience (laughs) and, you know, like, and so it just occurred to me, like, um, as I was a senior, by this point, I was like, okay. And I knew, you know, I wasn't, wasn't stupid. I knew how politically important evangelicals were, and I knew that it was strategic to engage them on on my issues like climate change. Um, so I did my senior thesis project on on evangelical environmental discourse,
2: mm-hmm. and, and
1: also it was very personal. You know, like I just I really couldn't understand why my father, who claimed to live by these Christian values, wouldn't wouldn't you know want to to do something about our hurting Earth and you know God's creation and, and our The fact that people are impacted by environmental harm. And um, so it was it was very much like a a personal endeavor as well as an intellectual and and strategic one. But Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I did that. I that paper, I think I did like maybe the first half of it was on why. Historically, at least kind of the modern version of evangelicals haven't been great on environmental issues, to put it mildly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then the second half was really looking at the biblical narratives that do speak to why Christians should care about the environment. Um, And that did because especially at that time, you know, everyone wanted the evangelical vote. And so it, it kind of launched me into this very niche career of faith-based environmental activism, where I, I worked with a kind of a variety of nonprofits, specifically working with Christians and other people of faith on environmental campaigns, um, which, yeah. So, and it, it's funny, I joke that like my environmentalism brought me back to God, but there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> like It was, it was connecting with people, you know, people like Peter Illy and, and Cal DeWitt and these kind of theologians, um, and activists who do self-identify as Christian, but also care deeply about this earth and mm-hmm. and people here, that made me realize that not all Christians and not all versions of Christianity um, were harmful. Um, and so, yeah, and, and sort of reopened, you know, reopened me to to maybe taking a, a, new, a new and different look at at the faith that I was raised in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Speaking personally for myself, like one of the things that rekindled a desire to explore Christianity was, was discovering the writings of people like Wendell Berry.
1: Yep. Wendell Uh, Berry is a big one for me
0: too. Yeah. I mean like Christianity and the survival of creation is one of my all time favorite essays. Like,
1: (laughs) yeah, yeah. I love there's a part, I think it was in that essay, but it was definitely Wendell Berry where he talks about like, you know, I could become a Buddhist or, you know, a pantheist or any number of other spiritual traditions, but like for better or worse, this is the faith I was born into. Right. And I I feel called to make it as beautiful as possible. I'm paraphrasing, but that, that really resonated with me.
0: Yeah. And there is something to like those strands of Christianity that is actually quite affirming and really built into essence of wonder and reverence for the natural world and anything that might extend beyond it but even so um there is a lot of beauty there for sure
1: yeah definitely climate change, it's a little bit of a lost cause when we're talking about older white evangelicals. <laughs> Unfortunately, it because it was politicized um, sort of early on, it's just, you know, it's your team versus mine. And, and climate change is, is not on the Republican team. And so, and not to say that it shouldn't be, it very much should be, <laughs> like, especially if you are a conservative, conserving this earth and conserving the immense amount of resources it's going to take to adapt to climate change should be high on your priority list, but ideologically that it just doesn't seem possible at the moment. And I think there was a lot of, um, energy and resources spent on trying to win over those kinds of people in the early 20, 2000s, but it's just, we don't need them. You know, like people who are like, you know, straight climate deniers are like 10% of the population. They are largely white evangelical. <laughs> um, and you know, we can, it would be great to have people like my dad do a, a 180 and become climate champions, but I don't think that's going to happen. And I've kind of come to terms with that. Like my dad may go to his grave thinking that my life's work is, um, is bullshit. And um, that, you know, but strategically speaking, we don't. We need to mobilize the millions of people who are already concerned and afraid and alarmed and get them to actually do something about it and demonstrate their kind of collective and political will. Um, to get our decision makers to, you know, one, one, get the decision makers out of office who are terrible in this issue, and two, get the ones who are more open to it to actually do something about it. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, but I will say that I have worked a lot with younger evangelicals, which I don't even know if that term works anymore, because I know a lot of people wouldn't even self-identify as evangelical anymore because of how um, tainted it has gotten by, by the Trump administration and all the evangelical pastors who are championing it. Um, But, you know, kind of our age and below, even people who are maybe theologically more conservative, I think are much, much more open to climate activism because they do see it as in line with, you know, our call as Christians to love our neighbors and to care for God's creation. And um, there's, you know, a a much, in the same way, I think that younger evangelicals tend to be more open to things like LGBTQ rights. I Mm. think there's more openness to, to climate change. And I have run campaigns, you know, with that audience and and that have been very effective. Um, and I also think too, like, you know, I'm, I go to an Episcopal church when I go to church and, Mm -hmm. um, there's just so much to say about Christian, you know, kind of progressive Christianity, mainline Protestant, but also, um, kind of more progressive Catholic. And so even like, you know, the black evangelical church is wonderful on, on climate justice. And, and so I think that, you know, people tend to focus on white evangelicals especially older white evangelicals cuz they have a lot of political power and they tend to be really loud but i actually think there's a great deal of um inspiration and power in working with christians outside of that um who do have these beautiful stories around why we are called to care about this issue. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, to me, that's a lot more interesting, um, and a lot more impactful is to work with, with the kind of people who are already concerned and not try to convince the people who are just probably pretty immovable.
0: Right. Thank you. Thank you for, for detailing that because I, I think it's important to at least acknowledge that impasse exists um, you know, and it, there is, there can often be, as you mentioned, there can often be like a generational impasse there. Um, with people of a certain age may just may not be open to the possibility whatsoever. Um, but that again, there, there are a lot of other places to find hope and, and, and to invest in in the future and to invest in right now. And I'd actually love to actually move our conversation to talk a bit about what you're doing in that space. You co-host a podcast called No Place Like Home. Uh, Your co-host is Marianne Hitt, and you explore a lot of different conversations there. Um, Could you give a little short origin story of why why you started the podcast and and what you explore through the show.
1: Yeah, definitely. We started it a little over three years ago. Um my co-host, Marianne Hitt, is the director of the Beyond Coal campaign, which is a, a program of this year. And they it's actually the largest climate campaign in the world. They've retired close to three hundred coal plants, which is wow. amazing. So they're like doing like the real hard work of actually, you know, decreasing carbon emissions <laughs> and, and they're quite effective at it, even in spite of our horrible federal situation, you know, they're Mm. just going community by community. Um, so, and I actually, how I met Marianne is I worked on the Asheville beyond coal campaign a couple of years ago at working with a lot of churches and we were, we were successful. We retired the Asheville coal plant, which was super, super fun. You don't get a lot of wins in this work. So when you do, it's, it's exciting. But Marianne and I became really close friends through doing that. Um, and we just, We both, especially, you know, the climate conversation can be very, as I'm sure you and your listeners are well aware, it can be very sciencey. It can be very kind of wonky and technological. Um, It's frankly been very male driven um, and and that kind of not a lot of space for more kind of emotional and spiritual conversations around it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And we yeah, we just wanted to open up a space to have those more vulnerable conversations where we could really explore sort of the the full range of human emotion, uh, you know, the grief and the sadness as well as the hope and the courage. And um, we wanted to elevate more women's voices. And yeah, that was kind of just kind of, you know, providing a space for a different uh, way of talking about climate change, a different tone about of talking about climate change and really trying to elevate some new voices who are working on this issue. So that's the origin of it. And our tagline is getting to the heart of climate change. So we really do try to use um, personal stories and, and more um, kind of emotional and, and even spiritual explorations, both Marianne and I. It's funny, Marianne, she married um, a PK. Her her husband's mother is actually a Presbyterian pastor, mm-hmm. and she didn't grow up religious. Her parents are more kind of scientists, but she, she sort of as, you know, because climate, as you can imagine, climate activism can be very, overwhelming and sad and dire, and it's easy to fall into despair. And so I think that we um, both felt the need to explore spiritual practices and spiritual narratives that help sustain us and give us courage. So even though it's not explicitly for a faith based audience, we do actually interview a lot of um, people of faith. And we also those kind of spiritual narratives and components interweave into a lot of a lot of our conversations. And we're actually our next season, which will be coming out early next year, is all about spirituality and climate change. Um, And not like not necessarily even religion. We're kind of thinking of it as like the on being for climate change.
0: Oh, yeah, that's great. (laughs) And I, I actually love the most recent season in which your theme was All the Climate Feels.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love that one too. Yeah.
0: It was, it, it's so, it was so great to, to listen to those episodes um, because it, it really did sort of validate like feeling emotionally overwhelmed at the like sort of profound depth of the climate crisis can just be really debilitating for a person. And I, I thought it was so great that you both went to these lengths to acknowledge that part of the experience because it's not something that is articulated very well I think I took a course in college or I'm sorry in graduate school actually called energy in the environment and so I got exposed to all these big important texts relative to climate change and and different things that our world has to reckon with and I sort of felt listless afterwards you know mm-hmm. like it just it felt overwhelming like, what can I do, you know? Um, and I felt like what you, what you did through those episodes is you acknowledge that sense of, like, individual helplessness, but also the ways in which you can find encouragement, which was just really wonderful. And I'd love to, to hear you talk about why that's important, to acknowledge the emotional side of, of addressing the climate crisis.
1: Yeah, it's, um, thank you for those kind words. It was my favorite season. Um, yeah, it was such a special and and we did it because we needed it too. You know, like it wasn't just for our listeners. It was also a journey that we needed to go on. Um, so I think, you know, I do, like I said before, like, I think the, the climate movement and, and don't get me wrong, I'm very much a part of the climate movement. I have been a part of the climate movement since I was a baby. And it's some of the best people I know. And, people you know, it's and just utterly brilliant people. Um, but it is mostly led by policy wonks and by scientists and mm. by lawyers, and people who just traditionally aren't great they're not great at storytelling or communications or or just kind of acknowledging the emotional element of all of this and 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 kind of allowing for the feelings that arise (laughs) you (laughs) know and so so you we've ended up with these sort of two bipolar narratives that are like you know we're it's everything is doomed we have there's no way we can control this we're all gonna die (laughs) you know and then (laughs) On the flip side, it's the, it's the, I call it the rainbows and solar panels narrative where it's like, everything's great. You know, we're going to put a bunch of solar panels up and go 100% renewable energy and technology is going to save us and we're good. Don't worry about this. We can just keep everything going. But, you know, you know, and, and that's not realistic either because you, that diminishes and dismisses the fact that climate change has already caused you know immense amounts of, of death and suffering and displacement and fear and anxiety um, and and we can't we can't save a lot of places and there isn't hope for a lot of, of people in places um, and and so you know one very personal example is where I live on the Gulf Coast in Alabama you know even if we cut all carbon emissions tomorrow, it's highly unlikely that where I live will, will survive the next 50 to hundred years, at least in any way, shape or form that I know it as. Mm. Um, And that is heartbreaking and Mm -hmm. creates a lot of grief and can be debilitating. And so I think just like we needed to open up a space for having those conversations. And I actually think that that religion can be a really powerful way of doing that because there is a lot of interesting, um, You know, theology around around how to process grief and and change and loss and these these big kind of existential human experiences that we all go through and we're all kind of collectively going through when it comes to climate change. Um, But yeah, and I think, too, like we work I've worked with a woman named Dr. Renee Lertzman, who's an expert on climate change and psychology. And you know, with the fact that it's really only been recently that we're seeing kind of wide-scale momentum on this issue from the public. Um, and for a long time, it was like, how do we get people to care? You know, like the scientists are very clearly saying that we are barreling towards um, towards disaster. You know, at, the, at you know the very real possibility of like the end of human civilization by the end of the century, if we don't actually, if we don't do something about this. Mm. And it it felt very crazy making, you know, like um, the science is, is pretty clear that we are in real trouble, but nobody's really paying attention to it. And I think part of that is because the climate movement isn't great at storytelling and communications, but part of it is just that, that this crisis is, is a massive existential crisis. And it is hard to look that in the face. Um, it's much easier to look away and, and to, you know, busy yourself with the many other um, dramas and trials and pleasures of life. And, and that was a real struggle. But working with Renee Lotzman, one of the things that she taught us is like, psychologically speaking, anytime you're facing a fear or anxiety, Um, you know, the first thing you want to do is just allow yourself to feel it and allow yourself to acknowledge that that is something that you're experiencing rather than try to run away from it or to Mm -hmm. ignore it. And so, um, that's kind of what we were doing is sort of trying to turn in to, to the anxiety and the fear and the grief Mm -hmm. and allow space for it. Because once you do that, then, then it opens up the possibility of working through it into some sort of positive action yeah so that was kind of our thinking around introducing that season and that theme
0: yeah and and again, like just to echo and bookend, like it's so important to give voice to that and to let people be open and and know that other people feel the same way. Um, I think that's that's such a valuable service to just let people know. And sort of a lot of people are just looking for permission, you know, hmm. in so many different ways. And I, I think it it does apply in the sort of, again, you mentioned like this existential crisis. We feel like some, some people just need to know that other people also see the weight of it and are worried, you know. Yeah, and...
1: you're not crazy. <laughs> it really is scary. You know?
0: <laughs> right. But... <laughs> so... Sorry, I'm, I'm sort of sputtering because like, that's, that's one of those, one of those things that, that where do you go next? You know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you you struggle with, with where do you go next? <laughs> with something as big as, as, and I'm sure being environmental communication specialist, that's, <laughs> that's something you deal with a lot.
1: Yeah, I think on, on the subject of where you go next, <laughs> and where we all have to go next. Um, I think, you know, I do struggle with, the with the narratives that are solely focused on hope, like we can solve this. And because we can't solve it, we can't solve it for Alabama, we can't solve it for the people who have already lost their homes, or even lost their lives or their family members. So hope doesn't always motivate me. And especially I went through like, a pretty dark depression after the election that Frank, you know, along with half the country, I certainly wasn't the only one, but I think layered on top of the dynamic with my dad and the fact that he is this like, you know, he served on the Trump transition campaign and, you know, is a huge Trump supporter and uses his large and powerful platform to prop up this, you know, criminal essentially, who is, who is endangering all of our lives um, mm-hmm. through climate change and many other things and, and hurting real people's lives right now. Um, so that was emotionally just very intense, but then also being a climate activist and just know, knowing firsthand how how much fire we're playing with and, and how little time we have to do something. Um, I did, I definitely fell into a bit, I'm not even a bit of depression, I'm pretty full on depression. And, Mm -hmm. and I think one of the, there's, you know, kind of several things that got me out of it. But one of them was there's this climate scientist named Dr. Kate Marvel. who's like one of my good friends. She's, absolutely brilliant and hilarious. Um, but she wrote this beautiful essay for on being um, called We Need um, Courage, Not Hope to Face Climate Change. And that that kind of lens and narrative worked a lot more for me because it was like, yeah, like, of course, like every great story, there's something, you're, you're facing this overwhelming situation or over, you know, Lord of the Rings, the Bible, <laughs> like, you know, a lot of our, our great our great kind of myth- mythologies and stories have have been about facing uh, unimaginable darkness or evil or mm-hmm. um, scary things and 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 the odds being against us, but still finding courage to to face them and to fight for a better world and to fight for each other and you know and that played out that's played out in some you know the civil rights movement and other social movements and so for me, courage was a much more motivating factor than, than hope. And I think that's, you know, because the truth is, like, we, we can't, we can't win on climate change or solve climate change, but we can still make it a lot less bad, you know, like, we can still uh, save millions of lives and save many of the places that we love. And we absolutely should be fighting for that we have, you know, we have, we still have time before we're kind of locked into the worst impacts and we can't just lay in bed despairing all the time. Although I I completely respect people who go through mental health struggles like that. I have gone through them and sometimes Mm -hmm. you do just have to kind of pause and rest and regroup and go to dark places and and let that process and experience play out before you get back up. But, um, but I do, I'm grateful that I was able to find the courage to get back up and, we just have to try. And even if, even if we fail, it's like, at least I will go down trying. Mm -hmm.
0: That is such a brave and like beautiful sentiment (laughs) to lean into courage instead of, instead of hope because hope it sort of takes your agency away, I guess. Whereas, whereas courage, at least a, a lot of times that It involves you in some way.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And this is absolutely, I like, I think a lot of people maybe until recently just sort of assumed that the activists or scientists were going to figure this one out. And it's not true. You know, like I'm out here in Los Angeles working with Hollywood writers on telling more climate stories in film and TV. And, you know, we need, we need everyone wherever you are, podcaster or, you know, waiter or Uber driver, like to, to, be engaged in this issue and, and to be fighting. And mm-hmm. it, luckily we live in a country where, uh, democracy is at least theoretically still a thing. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. but we should be engaging, you know, we have, we have power, we have civic power, we have voices, we have votes, uh, mm-hmm. and we should absolutely be using them to fight climate change.
0: So, I, I would like to use that our voices as as a as a segue. You are a communicator. This is what you what you focus on is communicating the urgency of the climate crisis, as as well as many other elements related to the climate. What or who are some of the voices that you think we need to listen to, in general, or perhaps for folks who listen to this show who come from? the background that that we do of being say from a conservative place and moving to potentially a, a much more open or progressive place than than where we started.
1: That's a good one. I have lots of thoughts. <laughs> um, I'm gonna, I'm going to start big picture and then move to specific suggestions. Sure. Yeah. Um but I would say certainly indigenous people. I've been working on a campaign to protect the Arctic Refuge, um, which is kind of the last great wilderness in the United States. It's been under attack by the oil industry for 20, 30 years. They've been trying to drill in it. And a combination of environmental activists and the Guatin, who is the native people who live adjacent to the refuge, and who it's their sacred land. They call it the place where all life is born. And so they've been successful at warding off drilling. And then under the Obama administration, it was... It you know wasn't a threat. The Obama administration wasn't going to let drilling in the refuge. But of course, under the Trump administration, they've reopened it to oil and gas exploration, and mm-hmm. it would essentially be eco side of the Gwich'in people. It would destroy their cultural. It would destroy their food source and so i've I've just so valued hearing from and spending time with with the Guchen and other indigenous people and learning about not only how they they truly do just live um more i don't even like the word sustainable, but like they're a lot of indigenous peoples don't even view themselves as separate from the land you know they view themselves it's a part of their body and being, and so it's you know they're so connected to this world and this earth. And I think that we have to we have to reframe our our connection as not being separate and certainly not dominating, but like we are interdependent and, and dependent on, on on the earth. And and, and indigenous uh, spiritualities and, and writers have been a really big you know wisdom source for me. Mm-hmm. And also just like especially with the Guichen, you know, like they're facing oil and gas drilling on their sacred lands, but they're also the Arctic is warming faster than anywhere else in the world, so they're also experiencing more severe climate impacts than most of us and and yet they just keep fighting you know like they just are so resilient and um you know and 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 really do show in ways that are you know they have been under attack from uh, colonialism and they would say terrorism <laughs> for mm-hmm. three hundred years since right. white Europeans got here, and now this they, this is just another version of the of of what they view as terrorism against their identity and their people, and and yet they they are some of the loveliest people, and they show up and they're brave and they're courageous and they keep fighting, and if they can keep fighting, then then I certainly can. And so one one source um or, that people should be listening to is uh, the Liturgists podcast which your some of your listeners might also listen to oh, yeah. they also kind of explore this This weird in-between zone that many of us find ourselves in who came out of the evangelical community. Yeah,
0: I've had Science Mike on the show and Jamie Lee Lee Finch a couple of times. Yeah, so So
1: Science Mike and Jamie Lee Finch and William Matthews and Michael Gunker all went up to the Arctic Refuge and Mm -hmm. got to actually experience it and be on the land and witness it, which is just an absolutely magical, sacred thing, and they also spent time with the Guochin and and really just witnessed their stories and their struggles. And they just released a beautiful podcast. So it's the liturgist slash Arctic. So mm-hmm. that would be a great. And they explore not only climate change but in, indigenous rights and and kind of our a lot of you know it's it's really really beautiful and expansive. Um, so that's a great more recent resource. Um, mm-hmm. And then yeah, like living in the deep south, I've done a. lot research recently on the civil rights movement and my family's history in the area and you know unfortunately my family was on the wrong side of history and and was kind of oppressors and that's personally weird and hard to struggle with but one one you know thing that i've definitely come to appreciate is my friend Mariana hegler who's another person that people should absolutely be following on Twitter, she's she's hilarious and brilliant and wise, and also her essays are just stunningly beautiful when it comes to climate change and kind of all those intersecting issues. But she specifically writes on climate justice, and she wrote a beautiful essay on how climate change isn't the first existential threat. To, and she talked about how like her ancestors, who are black black people from Mississippi you know, in Alabama, um, they, they, you know, they survived slavery, <laughs> they survived mm-hmm. like incredible existential threats, and, and struggled with them and under them. And, and I think that looking to marginalized people who have, who have struggled and survived these really dire circumstances is is a place where we can learn, you know, how we navigate this kind of scarier world that we're that we're kind of barreling towards. And that, so Mary and I Hegler, the liturgist's new Arctic episode. Those are two, um, any, you know, Sherry Mitchell, I'm, I'm reading this beautiful book called sacred instructions uh, and it's indigenous wisdom for our kind of current era our current age. And there's so much, so much goodness and wisdom in that about how, Um, We look to indigenous traditions to help instruct how we how we navigate the climate crisis and and kind of all of the craziness in this world today. Um, Those would be some those would be the ones. Um, Catherine Wilkerson is um, Dr. Catherine Wilkerson. She also she studied religion at Sewanee and she has like a very rich theolo- theological background and actually wrote a book on evangelicals and creation care. Mm-hmm. But she has a lot of beautiful kind of more uh, spiritual explorations on, on climate change that I, I love and, and also kind of more raw and vulnerable ways of looking at it, which I find really beautiful. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, um, who is herself an evangelical Christian and a climate scientist is pretty brilliant on this and, and, of all the kind of climate scientists, I'd say she's probably the best at speaking to more conservative evangelicals and giving right. you language and tools with how you might do that with your conservative family.
0: <laughs> and she's been doing that for a very long time.
1: Yep. Yeah, she has. And she's just utterly brilliant. Yeah, those are those are my favorites at the moment.
0: Those are all all wonderful recommendations. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to to mention those at and, and go into why why they're so valuable? You mentioned earlier that that hope isn't necessarily the things that motivate you, but courage is. And you you've given just given us so many things uh, about different conversations and and peoples and authors and and things like that 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 speak to the climate crisis as as well as how to live through it and and how to exist within it. Is there anything? Anything else that that we haven't really touched on? You've also already talked about how there are some folks that that you just may never be able to get through to about this. If it's not hope, I suppose, um, is it the conversations themselves that sort of energize you to to continue to do the work, or is it just the the existential nature of it? What is that thing that, that motivates you and keeps you, instead of being hopeful, but keeps you uh, let's, let you continue to be courageous.
1: Yeah, that's really good. Um, I, I mean, certainly all of the people that there's, you know, I, I'm just in love with, you know, I'm in love with people who are in love with this world. And so, Mm -hmm. um, anyone who is fighting this fight alongside me is, um, been a, a huge source of courage. Um, I think, you know, I, I do think that there are still very much, you know, there's lots of things that we can do and, um, you know, Catherine Hayhoe says the most important thing that we can do about climate change is to talk about it and to kind of acknowledge and face it and um, and have hard uh, conversations. I have a friend who says, be the kind of be the asshole at the cocktail party who, who brings up <laughs> climate change. <laughs> and so I think it's really important to have you know conversations on podcasts, but also just in our everyday intimate lives mm-hmm. um, with our friends and family members and hairdressers and soccer you know, all, you know, anyone you encounter just because, and I do think it helps people feel less alone because the truth is a lot of us are really, I mean, it's the majority of Americans, especially, you know, our generation and younger are really uh, struggling and, and scared and, and you're worried. And so I think acknowledging that makes you feel less alone and less crazy and, and connecting often, you know, most often, I think you'll probably hear, yeah, me too. I'm pretty freaked out as well. Um, and then I think it is turning that, that, um, that concern into action. And it's really, it's actually, I, it's so simple to be a climate activist, you know, like, um, you can, you could literally, you know, Google the Sierra club and beyond coal, there's a local chapter that will tell you exactly what you need to do in your local community to get involved in this fight. Um, there's 350.org, there's a the sunrise movement, who's lobbying for the, the green new deal, um, there's, you know, there's just, there's so many great organizations that, that you can plug into and get involved in. And actually, I mean, activism is a huge antidote to despair. Um, connecting with other people who are doing good work, doing good work yourself um, is a great way to break out of that sense of, of anxiety and to, and to put that concern to good use. And, you know, one of my favorite stories as an activist and really kind of my mantra as an activist is actually comes from the Gwich'in. My my mentor was a man named Lenny Combe, who became an activist. He was a photojournalist, and he went up to Covered to do a story on, on the Arctic Refuge in the 90s. And he just um, became so mesmerized and in love with not only the land, but the Gwich'in people that he said, he couldn't be impartial anymore. And this is when the the refuge was under threat by the Bush administration. Um, So Mm. he became an activist and he really, you know, he would, he trekked all around the country and would talk to, you know, he traveled 10 hours to talk to five people in the middle, you know, in the church basement. He was a true organizer, boots on the ground. Um, And he really did mobilize a movement. I mean, you could really point to his work with the Guichen and his work organizing in, in congressional districts and places around the country to why the refuge has not been drilled in to date. He was a massive reason that we re, we've been able to protect it so far. Um, but early on in his in his work, he he was spending time with one of the Guichen elders. And they had just won one of the battles to protect the refuge. And he was so curious about the strategy and, and, and kind of how the tech, you know, the technical side of how they were successful. And he kept asking the Gwich'in elder, like, well, you know, what was your strategy? What did you do? Like, what, you know, what was the plan? And and the Gwich'in elder just kept responding, um, you you know, you just show up and you do it in a good way. And you would be like, no, no, but like, you know, but how did you do it? And he was like, you just show up and you do it in a good way. And I think that that is, that is so true. Um, whatever your power is, wherever your position, if you are a person in the United States of America, you have civic power, you have voting power, you have consumer power, um, you can write a letter to the editor you can pick up the phone and call your congressman you could literally pick up the phone and make a make an appointment to meet with your congressional office and it's not even that scary or intimidating like i've taken so many people to do that when i was working on campaigns and it's actually you know it's it's a very accessible thing that people just don't know know is accessible um and and you know going to public hearings just whatever Um, Whatever the local climate fights you're involved in, when there is big, you know, federal fights like protecting the Arctic Refuge, figuring out what you can do about it, figuring out when you should be calling your senators or, you know, telling Chevron that you're going to boycott them if they drill in the Arctic Refuge. There's lots of organizations who can help you use your voice and your power to make a difference. Um, So I hope all of your listeners will will show up and do it in a good way.
0: Thank you so much for, for sharing those. I, I love both of those comments. Activism is a huge antidote to despair, and you just show up, and you do it in a good way. I can't think of a, a better way to, to encapsulate the work you do as well as what, you, what you've shared with, with me in, in our conversation here. Where can, people, where can people find you online? Where can they find your podcast? Uh, where can they find ways to help support you in your activism and your work?
1: Yeah, Um, you can find No Place Like Home, a podcast that gets to the heart of climate change on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, you know, kind of wherever you wherever you get your podcasts. Um, We also have a Twitter and Instagram account. I'm on Twitter at Anna Jane Joyner and on Instagram at Anna Jane Joyner. I tend to talk more about this stuff on Twitter. But if you want beautiful pictures of my dogs in Alabama, follow me (laughs) on Instagram. Um, yeah. And then, I mean, I am, I'm in the process of starting, um, what we're calling the good energy project, which is a consultancy that supports Hollywood writers, um, and kind of content creators working in TV and film and digital media. So if you, if you are one of those people or know people in those fields who are passionate about climate change, uh, reach out to me on Twitter or, or follow up with me. Cause I, I do think that storytelling and Talking about these these issues in more uh, vulnerable and human ways is really really critically important, and just talking about it more in general.
0: That's great, Anna Jane. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.